Welcome to another edition of the In Memoriam edition of the podcast. Today we are here to talk about uh, David Pingree, um, a monumental figure in the history of astrology. And we have uh, today with us Professor Charles Bonnet, Professor Alexander Jones, uh, Professor um, I should say professors because everyone here is one. Stephen <laughs> <laughs> Eileen uh, and Professor Kim Potha. Uh, thank you very much for joining us and share uh, with, uh, with us your experience with uh, uh, the late David Pingree uh, as colleagues, as, as um, students. Um, as friends. Also. As friends also. Um, so... Um, I would give you the word uh, to you who knew uh, uh, Professor Pingree. Um, I so. would ask, how did you, uh, what is your first recollection of Professor Pingree? How, <laughs> right. how, you met, how did you uh, met him? Hmm. Want in chronological or reverse chronological So would that be, with Charles, would that be you? Am I the oldest one here? Maybe I am. Yes, yes. Well, at least with the longest acquaintance. With well, the longest acquaintance, yes. Well, I first met David Pingree in the Duke Humphrey Library um, of the Bodleian Library in Oxford, which is, of course, where all the manuscripts are. Um, and we were immediately looking at manuscripts together, talking about one work which um, has always been at the back of my mind, uh, the Book of the Nine Judges, which is a book, um, um, the, uh, the translation, put, well, a book put together by Herman of Corinthia and Hugo Sanctelielsis from nine different Arabic sources about astrological interrogations and judgments, a very long book. And the first thing that David said was, you Going to edit it, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I still haven't edited it, but um, he just took it for granted that people could edit texts, whether they were in Latin or Greek or Arabic or Persian or Akkadian, um, just at a drop of a hat, you know, very, very quickly. And uh, um, and really, I mean, my what what attracted me to him um, was the importance that he. Um, uh, attached to the edited text, a good edition of a work, whether it was of astronomy, astrology, magic, um, um, and um, and so, I mean, after a couple of years, I was actually working with him um, in Brown um, University in, in the famous Wilbur Hall, where we had this uh, coterie of very fine historians of the exact, of exact mathematics. Um, and he was just so patient. We would take a text. In fact, it was the Liber Aristotelis of um, Hugo Santaliensis. Um, and he would spend two or three hours just sitting next to me, uh, reading the text with me and making all kinds of very um, pertinent and important comments on the text um, until we um, disbanded or um, went to lunch, which in America is an enormously early time, about, about a half past 11, um, and joined uh, Otto Neugebauer, who was uh, still around in Wilbur Hall, and uh, Gerard Toomer, um, and the dogs, the dogs, I mean, 
David always had his uh, his dog Junior with him, a rather um, one might say intellectually challenged dog. <laughs> it was a kind of antidote to David's super intelligence. Um, and Jared Krutuma had his two corgis. Um, I don't think um, um, I don't think Otto Norgeba had any dogs. Anyway, we all had lunch and then we went back to the text. But I was just so um, um, grateful and uh, happy that we could just read a text word by word, make sure that we understood it. He was writing the commentary. I was making sure that the Latin um, made sense and so on. Um, and this uh, at this um, uh, attention to the accuracy of texts. I mean, he used to um, he used to um, use all the manuscripts of any text that he was editing. Um, and not only was it an attention to the accuracy of the text, but it was also an attention to the vocabulary, the glossary, and so on. And I remember. Uh, when he came to the Warburg Institute, where I was, where I have been since 1979, in fact, um, he spent a whole summer just drawing up um, a glossary to his two-volume work of Vettius Valens. Um, and I was just amazed that he should spend so much time just um in fact what happened was that it was published by Teubner and all the page numbers all the line numbers were changed so he spent the whole summer just uh, writing a glossary changing all the page numbers and all the line numbers he had such patience and he was not averse to doing the most menial of academic jobs rather than sharing them with poor research students or or younger colleagues and and you know his humility as it were in doing everything both the difficult job of um, actually uh, uh, establishing a text and also the rather tedious job of writing glossaries to that text because he thought they were very important um, really um, impressed me and 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 gave me a model to follow well, if we're following in, in chronological order, I probably come next. Because <laughs> so, uh, I, I, I was a student in the history of math department at Brown from 1981 to 1985. So I suppose I must first have met David when I went for a visit to the department the year before to to see whether this is where I wanted to go and for them to see whether they wanted to take me. Uh, I don't really remember that, but I do remember sort of the experience of particularly my first year of taking classes with David. I was I was studying with David and with Gerald Toomer. This was at the time when there still were the four members of the department all active in the department. Uh, Abe Sachs was still alive and Neugebauer was still at Brown, uh, but they were, both of them of course were retired, but still very much a presence. Uh, and yes, I do remember the dogs, which are, you know, the downstairs dogs, uh, Gerald Corgis were, uh, you know, they came off as as quite uh, lively and aggressive, uh, and uh, David's was was very soporific on the whole. Um, but uh, I, I, you know, the the classes David did with me, and they were always one on one. I mean, the total student body at that time was two mm -hmm. students. And the the, uh, the other student was always someone who was primarily studying Sanskrit. So, and I wasn't doing Sanskrit. So I, I would be doing classes in text in Greek, and uh, they they were they tended to be classes that were connected with something that David was working on, making an edition of or in 
studying it in some intense way. Uh, so my first semester, I think he did a class on uh, 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 on translations of, of uh, medieval Arabic astronomical texts from, from around 1300. And then the second semester, we moved into looking at astrological material, uh, uh, primarily Vettius Valens, he was working on his edition at that point. I think it ended up coming out about a year after I finished as a student. Uh, and the, 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 the classes were, I mean, they were extremely illuminating, but at the same time, a bit difficult for me to take everything in because we, we would be working through the text as, 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 as Charles was describing, really going sort of line by line through it. But he would also have this, there, he, would, he would have this pile of books on the table, um, which were his running commentary on everything. And so gradually through the course of a two hour meeting, he would pick up the top item on this and open it up somewhere where there'd be something that would be relevant to understanding his passage. And, uh, and then he would shot it and put it in a different pile and and the next book would be, be in line and, and it, it, it there was really not very much opportunity for me since i knew nothing about these texts beyond what, what he was saying to um, to really contribute anything except just absorbing it all uh it, it was uh uh quite an experience be, being in those classes, but his, they were also, I mean, he had a very, you know, he was a very gentle man, but all, had a wonderful sense of humor in a, not in a jokey way at all, but just, I think he, he, he thought of, really he thought of history as being something that uh, you had to see the, the comical side of sometimes in order to really appreciate all the other parts of it. Uh, and you know, it, it, so, it, things that were not really essential for understanding the text, but just were, were sort of side stories about the histories of the manuscripts and the people who had brought them from Byzantium to Italy and so on. These, these things would, would, would uh, sort of leaven the, the more detailed philological and, uh, and technical side of the classes. Yes. So very intense classes. Oh, they were very, yes. <laughs> I mean, basically, you know, I would come away having really absorbed perhaps about 10% of what he had been talking about, and then I'd have to go back and read everything, which I think was the point. Um, I uh, was in the, uh, as like Alex said, the uh, Brown History of Mathematics program from uh, 1989 to 1995. And then I was there off and on as a postdoc um, afterwards until um, about uh, 2004. So, um, yeah, you know, a lot of varied experience. And my first visit, my first meeting with uh, Professor Pingree was the um, the visit um, for as uh, like Alex uh, had that experience of when you're considering graduate programs, is this the place for you? And yes, just the amazing um, the suite of rooms on the first floor of Wilbur Hall, you know, with books stacked uh, not only on all the bookshelves, but just in piles everywhere. At, at that time, um, it was only um, Gerald Toomer, besides um, Professor Pingree, who was there, uh, I think, half time, perhaps. But for that first year I was there, Jamil Rajak. Um, who has been at uh, McGill uh, subsequently in the um, uh, Center for Islamic Science, was a postdoc with a one-year appointment. 
and um, working with Professor Pingree on the you know, aspects of the Ptolemaic uh, tradition and Greco-Islamic astronomy. And, you know, so I met him and I was uh, enjoyed uh, talking to him and thinking, well, since, you know, I'm, I'll be working on Sanskrit and you know, he studies Arabic, I guess we won't have much communication, but it's nice to have good people around. So, you know, I get the acceptance letter from them. I send my acceptance back. I'm looking forward to this. I get a letter from Jamil Rajep about the June 1989 saying, um, you know, so glad that uh, you are coming to Brown. Um, Professor Pingree and I have discussed it and we think you should begin start studying Arabic this summer. So, you know, you buy this book, I'm willing to, once you can read the alphabet, I'll be willing to meet with you once a week. And I'm thinking, Arabic? I didn't say I wanted to study Arabic. But I got that too, I'm afraid. <laughs> and, but of course, you know, fortunately I was just smart enough to know how dumb I was and not, you know, make any objections. And um, that is simply a, a classic example of the attitude of the whole department and especially Professor Pengree, as Charles was saying, you just didn't, it was taken for granted that you know, you would study the things that were connected, that you would have these um, transmissions between different uh, linguistic and cultural traditions, and you wouldn't just carve out turf for yourself and um, barricade yourself behind linguistic barriers. You know, you would, uh, if you didn't know the languages or the technical details required to study a subject, by golly, you would learn them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One yeah. lovely experience of that first year, I remember, was Svi Langerman was uh, visiting, at working on um, some of the um, uh, Hebrew texts. And he had a, um, a Hebrew manuscript of, uh, of the uh, planetary hypotheses of Ptolemy. And um, uh, Jamil had an Arabic version of it. And uh, Professor Pingree had the Greek so there was, you know, I was uh, able to sit in on and take notes for this uh, seminar that they had, just um, working through these three different versions of this rather dense text and, you know, talking about it. And um, as Alex said, it was so much that I was just way beyond me and over my head at that point, but it was just so absolutely exciting. I remember um, Tzvi came in with a note in his manuscript on one point, you know, to anybody who reads this um, translation, I just want to say that I'm sorry I translated it. I, um, and, you know, just we all cracked up at that. And it, it was uh, the most wonderful introduction to how the excitement, as Charles was saying, of um, just working with original texts focusing on editing the text, not uh, restricting yourself to just the corpus of already published works. That was anathema to him. It was, um, you had to be able to get out there and uh, read the surviving materials and not just rely on what people had pre-digested for you. Well, we couldn't agree more. <laughs> May I just say, um, didn't, David require of every PhD student that he or she already knew two ancient languages, whether it was Sanskrit and Arabic or Sanskrit and Greek or Latin and Arabic. Right. Um, 
which was, you know, it's quite a tough ask, a big ask, really. I came in, and because I was not a classicist to start with, but I came in with some Sanskrit, continued with that, with Arabic, did some Latin and some Greek as well, and we even worked on a bit of Persian, which was, I think, Professor Pingree's, um, the first time he really got mm. into learning mm. Persian. So that was an education in itself, just to see how somebody so experienced and learned in classical languages mm. set out to learn a new one. Uh, of course, we, you know, started right with a manuscript, <laughs> yes. appalling nostalgic script that was just mm. like lines of words. Yes, yes. But yeah, but yeah, absolutely. About the transmission was a very big part of the subject. So I think, Stefan, <laughs> please. <laughs> yes. Um, well, my uh, acquaintance with David Pingree began very late in the summer of. 2005, uh, at least oh. my personal acquaintance with him. Um, I had read many of his uh, books and articles by that time because both my doctoral uh, dissertation and my German habilitation, um, which I was about to finish in that summer of 2005, were about uh, topics in the history of astrology. So, um, Professor David Pingree was a towering authority, of course, for me, but I never had had an opportunity to meet him in person until that summer when um, my doctoral advisor, Wolfgang Hübner, was about to retire. And um, I knew that various people were expecting uh, that I should um, take care of a Festschrift. And I uh, was well aware of the enormous um, amount of work that usually goes into such a job. So I was very happy when uh, a senior professor in the Münster department suggested that I rather organize a small conference um, instead of um, editing a Festschrift. And uh, that turned out to be very interesting because um, um, luckily uh, authorities such as Charles Burnett and Hermann Hunger and Paul Kunich um, uh, were willing to come to Münster in, honored, in um, order to honor um, Wolfgang Hübner on that occasion. Um, so we had with these scholars and, and a group of doctoral students um, a small but very nice conference on the history of astrology. And uh, David Pingree was also um, uh, among uh, the speakers, um, that was my first opportunity to meet him in person. And since I was about to submit my, um, oh, by the way, in the course of that, um, of those days in Münster, uh, there was one um, delightful situation. Um, I must tell this little anecdote briefly. Um, we have a rather important astronomical clock in the uh, cathedral of Münster, and we had organized a guided tour to that um, astronomical clock. But um, while most of the people were standing in front of the clock and listening to the explanations, I realized that a small group of people, namely David Pingree, Charles Burnett, and Hermann Hunger, Charles, correct me if I remember wrongly, but they understandably uh, had withdrawn a bit and were sitting in one of uh, the, mo the remotest benches um, 
in the dark part of the church, uh, enjoying the opportunity of chatting with each other after, after a long time that they had not seen each other, um, which um, in retrospect, um, if I think of the fact that this was in August 2005, less than 100 days mm. before he died, mm -hmm. um, that was certainly um, um, an important situation for these friends uh, to gather probably the last time um, on that occasion. And um, for me, uh, that those days were um, very important because I was about to um, uh, to be uh, unemployed uh, from January onwards. Um, so I was trying to uh, get a fellowship for the United States in order to uh, work um, somehow with David Pingree and to learn from him. I had this preparation in um, Greek and Latin astrological texts. And um, since he uh, was in... Um, poor health, uh, of course, oh. at that time, and had these very severe eye problems also, um, he was uh, willing to consider such a, um, a cooperation with me in Providence, and he uh, eagerly supported um, the attempts um, to obtain uh, permission from his chair in the department and such things. And from those, so we exchanged several letters um, in August uh, 2005. This is one of them. Um, and you, oh, one moment. And you, uh, you I see the, oh, yes. um, the logo of University. Brown University. And um, I, I pulled up this letter because uh, in this letter, he explains to me, he explained to me uh, which topics he would like to work on with me uh, once I would uh, arrive in Providence. Um, I did not, re uh, this entire plan did not work out um, because of his uh, premature death, but it was uh, probably, it is probably um, of interest um, to read quickly the few lines um, which projects he wanted to work on at that point. Um, so the decisive lines say the texts that I have in mind for us to work on are ones I've been working on for a number of years in the second volume of Epitomes of Rhetorius, almost finished. An edition of the Greek and Latin versions of Chardin's Muda Karat um, Abu Masha, sorry Charles, um, I I, I cannot pronounce that correctly. Mutakarat uh, bi abimashar, largely finished, but I shall have much to do with the Arabic. Related to this, the Cantiloquium Hermetis, I've collated some 60 or so manuscripts. Imagine all the effort that went into those collations. Mm. So, he collated some 60 or so manuscripts and pseudo-Plato's Liber Vaccae. About half of the manuscripts have been collated. Besides these, I have some Byzantine and Latin translations of works of Masha Allah, of what I have made tentative Arabic texts. After all these, 
more needs to be done on the tradition of the Picatrix in Renaissance Europe. And five days later, he added one item saying, to the long list I sent you of possible projects, I should add one more, an edition of the astrological works of Theophilus of Edessa. We can uh, discuss what exactly to do later. So I was immensely um, motivated and eager um, to travel to Providence and um, work, probably not on all of them, but at least on some of this material with him for one or two years. Um, uh, that, of course, was then not really possible. But um, since I got an assistant professorship in Urbana-Champagne, Illinois, I um, stopped over on my, that was in the following year, and I hope I'm not um, spending too much time explaining this, but it may be of interest for the following um, um, conversation here. I stopped over uh, in May 2006 in uh, Providence in order to examine um, his uh, many papers and um, manuscripts in Wilbur Hall with, of course, with Isabel's, his, his uh, widow's permission and uh, support. I also um, stayed uh, at their home. Um, Isabel was immensely kind and uh, allowed me to uh, stay at their home. So we had very interesting conversations about his, up, uh, about his education, um, the way he um, became such an um, important scholar and um, during the day I would uh, try not to um, be overcome by desper desperation seeing those piles of thousands and thousands of photocopies and um, half-finished manuscripts and uh, articles and everything was still as if he would return a few minutes later um, because he had been taken to a hospital um, not, not expecting. Uh, um, he, he was expecting to return a few days later from the hospital. And uh, fortunately, I was able to um, find the scattered parts of his um, edition of at least of the first volume of his edition of Rhetorius, which was probably among his many Greek editions, the project that was dearest to his heart. At least he had been working on that since the mid 70s. Um, so for about 30 years. And uh, the first volume was ready for publication, but there were no computer files at that time. Um, at least uh, there were some, um, but um, not of the latest date among his um, among his doctoral students. But he would not work uh, and type things in a computer. So the thing to find was his personal manual, his uh, typescript, uh, the printed version, on which he used to work. Uh, that was the only complete version, and um, with. Um, much help by Isabel, we um, we were able to find the various parts in Wilbur Hall at their home. Um, and I know I should have uh, 
um, brought this to publication much earlier, but I was prevented by various circumstances. Um, this will uh, or shall follow as soon as possible now, but um, that was very impressive to see Wilbur Hall, the environment in which he had been working um, so intensely. And um, one last detail, which I should like to add. When I arrived in Urbana-Champaign, um, my um, senior colleague and uh, personal friend, William Calder, who happens to be um, arguably uh, the leading historian of classical scholarship in the 20th century, he was um, very eager to write an obituary of his former classmate, uh, David Pingree, because they had been um, um, in the same class at Harvard College. Um, and so uh, there were many phone calls and uh, letters being exchanged between Isabel Pingree and uh, the two of us, which um, uh, provided us with um, very interesting information regarding his education. To, to mention just uh, one or two details, which I found um, very um, noteworthy. He went to that um, excellent boarding school, um, Phillips Academy, Andover, Massachusetts, which, um, uh, as I found out only today, they have a Latin motto, uh, which says, um, finis origine pendet. When I read this, I felt reminded of Manilius, book four, line 16, uh, probably the most famous line in Manilius, that the end depends on the beginning, on the birth chart. And uh, it is actually taken from Manilius, but of course, um, um, Philip's Academy intended it in the sense that education determines uh, the outcome of um, the young person's life. So in a way he had, uh, even if he, this is probably only a coincidence, but uh, there was um, Manilius already present in that um, education at um, Philip's Academy Andover. And the question that I thought about today before starting our interview was especially what brought being what brought David Pingree to astrology? Um, and to my knowledge, um, please, I ask the other experts uh, to correct me if I'm wrong, but that seems to have been his experience um, uh, when he was 22 years old on a Fulbright uh, fellowship um, in Rome at the Vatican Library, examining Greek manuscripts. Um, um, for paleographical purposes. So imagine he was 22 years old, a very young man, far away from home in Italy, examining these manuscripts. And he noticed in um, the manuscript 1056, one of the most important uh, manuscripts regarding Greek astrological texts, that there were um, Indian elements, um, uh, written on the margins of various leaves and uh, that um, sparked uh, for him the insight because the manuscript was obviously translated from Arabic so he understood uh, that this must have come from the Arabic world 
and then still further back from India. And uh, I think that um, that was the beginning of his um, uh, really enormous project of uh, investigating these various cultures in order to um, understand the transmissions and transformations of astrology um, better. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, <laughs> it's difficult to ask something at this point, <laughs> but um, uh, this would be uh, probably the, the, the way he entered astrology and then he studied the, mainly the um, transmission from one culture to the other. Would you say? Yeah, he um, he then got uh, fellowships at. Um, oh, sorry, uh, Kim, uh, were you going to respond? It doesn't matter. I was. Uh, no, you. I think you've got the chronological um, sequence there. So yeah, talk about the fellowships. Yeah, the okay, <laughs> uh, I try to be brief. Um, he uh, he understood that he would have to learn Arabic, which he didn't know at the time when he was uh, in Italy. So he. Um, he started learning that after his return to um, um, uh, to America. He also spent one or two years in India uh, in order to familiarize himself uh, from 15, from uh, 1958 to 1960 uh, in order to study um, the Sanskrit um, tradition of astrological texts. And um, um, he it was his contact with uh, the, uh, the Yavana Jataka of Spujitvaja, mm. um, which um, allowed him to understand that there were apparently Babylonian planetary models uh, used somehow in the text. At least this is what he um, asserted in, in a small autobiography, which he um, composed um, a bit before um, his death. And uh, so he writes in that little autobiography, which William Calder and I published in 2007, um, that for this reason, uh, he uh, got into contact with Otto Neugebauer after his return to America, because he was the, the expert on Babylonian um, mathematical astronomy. And uh, if I may add, one last detail, I think, um, Alex, you may know that, you probably know that better, but I think um, in a way, uh, David Pingree um, imitated that polyglot approach of Otto Neugebauer. Um, my impression is Neugebauer, um, he studied um, ancient Egyptian and cuneiform texts in order to be able uh, to, uh, to examine these mathematical documents um, seriously. Uh, and he al already had this, um, if I may call that polyglot approach to the history of science, of ancient science. And in a way, my impression is that David Pingree did a very similar thing in the field of history of astrology. Um, similarly, uh, learning uh, Arabic, well, he already knew uh, Sanskrit and Greek uh, from his um, college education, but he, he had to add um, Arabic and also some 
to some extent cuneiform um, texts uh, in order to master um, the complex net of um, uh, transmissions and transformations of these um, doctrines. He always said, yes, that um, Otto Neugebauer was a very formative influence, especially in his early career. I mean, he thought of Neugebauer as really an equivalent to the graduate advisor, who was Daniel Ingalls in um, the uh, Sanskrit and Indi Indic studies at uh, Harvard. And yeah, I think it was Neugebauer who, or at least um, uh, Professor Pengree always uh, described it as Neugebauer having sent him to Chicago, to the Oriental <laughs> to study Akkadian, you know, cuneiform texts. And yes, just to get this whole um, conspectus on the um, development of, uh, you know, pan-Eurasian exact sciences, to mm -hmm. use a term that is potentially uh, controversial here. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. If I can say it very well, um, the fact that in, he always insisted that astrology was an exact science. It was it belonged to the exact uh, mathematical science. I mean, because they were so so closely connected with astronomy. Um, but what um, Kim has just referred to the Pan Euro Asian um, um, canvas, as it were, is really very important. Um, that he uh, well, not only was he looking at um, texts which originated in Babylonia, in Mesopotamia, or in Egypt, and passed into um, Greece, and then passed into India, and then came back from India, and so on. But even further east, into Chinese, into Persian, into Chinese, into Japanese. And um, this is indicated, amongst other things, by the fact that he had a very great influence on Japanese scholars. One mustn't forget people like Michio Yano, a Sanskritist who was working in Brown with him for a couple of years um, and who developed um, an interest in Sanskrit astrology and how it um, penetrated not only into Chinese Buddhist culture, but also eventually into Japanese through the Chinese. And of course, he had PhD students from Japan, Tsukuba being the, the main one, um, another Sanskritist. But his, um, his universal, his global influence, as it were, is, is really very conspicuous. He was always a little apologetic about the fact that he himself could not read Chinese. But, you know, he was always, you know, always very, um, you know, took ownership of that. He was never one of the scholars who tried to create artificial barriers to you know, different um, areas or to pretend that the areas that they don't know about are somehow less relevant or mm. less important. Mm. You, know, it was all, it, you know, it's all connected. It's all important. You know, humanly speaking, we can't, uh, any of us do all of it, though he probably came as <laughs> any five normal human beings. Well, but um, yeah, but that was all that didn't in any way devalue or undervalue the importance of that material itself. 
Well, just uh, a little note on that. Um, we, uh, myself and uh, a colleague, set up a, um, a project at the Warburg Institute on Islam and Tibet to look at the relationship between those two cultures. And I wrote to David Pinker and he said, well, I have done a bit of Tibetan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what I take from uh, all the testimonies is that he was a person that uh, did not see uh, barriers between cultures. He saw bridges and roads and communication, and not only the languages, but the techniques, the all the ideas, the science. So it was uh, quite, um, I wouldn't say universal, but quite um, global, perhaps, in the world. Like a very uh, encompassing uh, perspective of knowledge and astrology in special, but knowledge in general and languages. I think that is one of the amazing parts. Uh, when people see a book, when uh, people read one of the books, I think we don't really understand how much work is in a book. Mm -hmm. You see, because it's the, the final product, a book, and how many years, how many studies, how many languages, how many contacts, how many documents were read. And this, our conversation, I think it's making this clear, mm -hmm. all the work. <laughs> and I, I wonder, if, can I share my screen? I have a, I have a fo photograph of, of Pingree. Kim, were you at Brown at the time when Wilbur Hall was being renovated and he was his, his library was moved into the it old gym? The basketball court in the old Pembroke. Right. Oh, absolutely. And there's a, this spectacular, if I can find this. Yes, that was oh. great. In, I mean, there was this massive basketball court that he had all his books and uh, manuscripts set up in. And it was, you know, this uh, vast barn of a place with um, uh, an incredibly noisy heating system that didn't work very well. But he thought it was just ideal because he had all these low, you know, bookcases. He could just walk along these aisles. Yes, yes, just like that. It's, it's a beautiful photograph too. I mean, the the photographer who uh, I think retired from Brown University not long after did two magnificent photographs that encapsulate the spirit of the history of math department. There's this one. Um, this was after you know th 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 this was after my time at Brown. Uh, but there's the other one of Neugebauer, that showing him bent over his studies, and uh, it, again, it's just a it's a it's a masterpiece of of encapsulating the scholarly spirit. Uh, and just, you know, this is not typical because this this was at a time when he had his library deployed in in, a, in such a neat way. There are not the piles of papers all over the floor. Um, <laughs> so this is not really what it was like to be in, in his office with him for a class in, under normal conditions. But it still, I think, catches him. Yeah, he finally had room to spread out. He had a, really half an entire basketball court full of those like head height shelves and he could you know walk along in the same room with the uh, lights installed over the shelves you see there and see everything but you do see those piles of paper on that uh, table so uh, uh, yeah but not on the floor that table that was the wilbur 101 was it the uh, class table that's, that's the table with the piles of books that i have <laughs> classes on yep uh, i don't know who has it now <laughs> okay so but you can also see how you know he suffered from very bad eyesight oh yes and yes, so I he would... had to put his um, face very close to his 
his book. Yes, I, I, rem I remember we, we invited him to a little conference on ancient science at University of Toronto when I was in the classics department there. And and he, he, he brought his paper, of course, entirely handwritten in that very mm. neat handwriting mm. he had. And, and he, he was holding it up like this through the whole thing. Mm. So mm. in fact, in fact, his talk was inaudible to anyone who wasn't in the front row, I'm sorry <laughs> to say. Uh, but uh, yes, I, mean, I, I can't imagine if, if he was alive today, how he would deal with the modern publishing world. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, with the whole business of having to do everything mm. through these horrible mm. electronic mm. submission mm. systems, he could mm. never do this. Mm. Uh, mm. I, he, I was the um, kind of the liaison for when he first started that, when I began in 1989, mm. my, my proctorship, as it was called, my research assistantship involved typesetting the uh, upcoming, the most recent volume of his Census of the Exact Sciences in Sanskrit. That was volume five, I think, which had been, you know, a project that had been stalled after volume four for something like 10 or 15 years because the publishers were requiring camera ready copy and of course as you said you know he didn't produce that but um with a good system you know he was not a technophile you might say but he did appreciate the advantages of some of the things you could do with modern information technology mm -hmm. as long as he had an amanuensis of you know <laughs> <laughs> the actual interface with the computer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the, in the same way, in the slightly more primitive days of computing, he, he, he had me write uh, Fortran program to calculate star positions for, uh, well, yeah, for, for working with um, with Christopher Walker on the uh, one of these early-ish early Babylonian star texts. Yeah. Um, I think with the image that, that is coming out of David Pingree, this uh, beyond his, his human side and his kindness and his attention to people is also um, the mark uh, he, he he left on 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 the academia on 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 yeah, on his disciples on the people who worked with him who knew him who were his colleagues and also. Um, in um, how do I say, creating an impulse from for for what is do, being still done today on the knowledge, the, the transmission of knowledge, the the, the addition of texts, uh, um, and it is something that uh, I wasn't uh, aware oh, of, yeah. uh, which is uh, especially the idea of their of no barriers because I'm I'm I like this idea very mm -hmm. much yes. of all the transmission and kind of this free area where knowledge just yes and transmits yeah and it's, it's because uh, of course we knew uh, and we know that uh, of the magnitude of his work and the importance and the impact of the work but um i think now what we're saying this is different yeah. much more different yeah. picture and how mm. larger is his uh impact as a scholar uh, in the way that he there's a continuation of this wave uh Till this day. So we thank you all for this, for being with us. If you have more, please we can yes. stay. <laughs> we can stay here. If you have more, or we can um, we can finish now and you can reschedule another conversation. It was a pleasure to talk to each one of you. Thank you very much. And we we thank uh, you have given your time to to. 
to give your testimony um, for for the podcast. And it's especially amazing because we are all in different time zones. So yeah. it's yeah. thank you very much for everything. Night for yeah. some and morning for others. Uh, so it's really thank you very much for all coming together to talk about this amazing scholar and human being. So. Thank you. I, I think I'm speaking for us all and saying it was, it's a real pleasure to do this and to reminisce about reminisce, uh, yes, yes. Uh, someone I think for all of us was an extremely important formative figure.